Welcome to the Renegade Reports. Hello, Ramon. Hey, you what? Everything yeah. good? Living the dream. Look at us, 7 p.m. on a weekday, recording. Who says this is an easy job? I'm not even getting paid job, for this. Yeah, I was just going to say, where's my money, bitch? Where's my white privilege that uh, <clears throat> makes me not work for free? Where's Kasatu to save me from this exploitation? Uh, they've been uh, in disarray since Swellenzima... Uh, Shags his secretary on the desk. Yeah, and they've been too busy sending uh, teachers posts to to people in return for fifty percent of their salary. Did you know that? Yeah, say that again. Satu have been selling <coughs> teachers posts. Yeah. In return for fifty percent of the salary that teacher gets, I think in in the private sector that's called labour broking. <laughs> I thought I thought they were against labour broking. Well, not if it's in their interests. Like most politicians aren't against things in their interests. Right. But this is of no interest to us. Let's get cracking. Yeah, why don't you introduce uh, introduce our esteemed guest? So today we have um another PhD, Jonathan, I hope you know. I think this is the sixth one on the Renegade Report. We're uh, collecting them. We are indeed. Yeah, we've got their heads in a jar just out back, so well, they're worth more than the PhDs, I suppose. <laughs> Ouch. you got to, you got to g- give them the compliment and then take it all back, hey? So, we have uh, Jason Werbeloff. Um, he is an author of science fiction. He is a philosopher. And what else do you do, Jason? Uh, that's it for now. That's it for now. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Well, welcome to the show. Good to have you on, especially on a weekday at 7 p.m. But nevertheless, we are going to discuss how to construct a good philosophical argument. Now, this is very rare in South Africa, all the way from Parliament to the streets. People don't know how to make do arguments correctly. But let's break it down for, for the average person who doesn't understand philosophy. So th- think about uh, if you're talking to Jonathan, how would you describe philosophy? Jonathan looks like an intelligent guy, um, so looks it wouldn't be too difficult to describe it to you. I'm just Jonathan. taking the knock, say. Eh? <laughs> um, so philosophy is the love of wisdom, and uh, wisdom is um, composed of asking difficult questions, fundamental questions. And when we answer these questions, we need to have criteria for um, what counts as a good answer or a bad answer. And uh, we use logic to determine whether you've supported your answer well or poorly. So we use logic as a set of criteria or judging, judging criteria to, to, to decide whether or not um, you, you are justified in holding your beliefs. Right. So is the point of philosophy, is it to find truth or is it to find um, an understanding or is it really to have a debate between two people and try to have an a favorable outcome for both? Um, all of those. Right. So um, ultimately, we do aim at truth with a capital T. Uh, most philosophers would agree that there is truth with a capital T. We think that there's an objective truth, and we're trying to arrive at that using strong objective arguments. Um, and once you have beliefs about the truth, we say you have understanding. And yes, we want to conduct conversations between people uh, where those conversations 
are, are, are conducted in a, in an amicable way with principles that everyone agrees on to try and arrive at some sort of uh, ultimate understanding. All right. So now there are various ways to construct an argument. Um, what are the, what are the, the easy ways to look at arguments? First of all, what is an argument? If you could define that for us. So an argument is a set of propositions or statements which can have a truth value. In other words, they can be true or false. So it's a set of statements that support another statement called a conclusion. So it's any set of statements where one of them is a conclusion which is supported by other statements. And if those statements which support the conclusion, in other words, premises, if your premises support your conclusion well, we'd say it's a good argument. Right. But you can have correct premises, a correct conclusion, but still be wrong. Well, it depends what you mean by wrong. Okay, so not truthful. Yes. So, so philosophers, we when you look at an argument, we evaluate a few things. We ask whether your premises are true, and then we ask even if your premises are true, do they guarantee the truth of the conclusion? Um, so, for example, um, let's say you're doing a poll. Okay, before the election, before this election, uh, you poll a bunch of people and you ask, so who are you going to vote for in the upcoming election? And uh, you poll, say, a lot of people, but not the whole population. You poll, say, 10% of the population. And that 10% says we're going to vote. Some of them say we're going to vote NC. Some of them say we're going to vote DA. You look at the, the, the proportion of people voting for each party, and you say, okay, based on this information, we predict that the, the, the election results overall, when the whole population is voting, will have a certain proportion, the same proportion. So that sort of argument is a strong argument, but the truth of the premises do, don't guarantee the truth of the conclusion. Your poll might be bad. There's bad polls that we see all the time. So um, that's a good example of, of, of an argument where, yeah, your, your premise might be true, you've polled people correctly, but your conclusion isn't necessarily true, that everyone in the general election will vote that way. Okay, so it seems like the problem we have uh, in our sort of societal dialogue these days is that we don't even have true premises. Uh, so we have a lot of ideas that aren't based. I assume to get to a premise, you have to have some sort of data point uh, which would allow you to arrive at a, at that premise, assuming you want the premise to be truthful. Correct. Um, so do you have any examples that you… Well, um, I've got one. You can throw, throw, so, throw it right down. All white people are racist. I am white. Therefore, I'm a racist. Right. So it's true that you're white, Roman. I'm looking at you. I think it's true, although we're going to actually get into that a bit later. He loves I think. talking about this French-Arab nonsense, but he's <laughs> definitely white, man. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's a very good point. Um, you know, when, when you use terms in your premises, you've got to define those terms. So we've got to define what we mean by white. We've got to define what we mean by racist. Because only once you understand those terms fully can we really get to grips with whether those premises are true or false. You can't say whether a statement is true if you don't understand the terms of that statement. But do you think people um, obfuscate the terms on purpose? Uh, from my side, I have a lot of debates on Twitter and offline. Um, and, and people make a declarative statement about something. They say that's racist. And then when you ask them, what does racist mean? It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Correct. Some use a dictionary. Some use this uh, pseudo power structure thing. Some use, um, I don't know what else they use, but no one can actually 
tell us what racism actually means. Right. So, yeah, this, this, is, um, this is something that I'm very interested in as a philosopher, um, and it was the topic of my PhD thesis, was trying to understand what, what the meaning is behind um, social terms like a social group or a race group or, um, or discrimination. And uh, philosophers do some good work on this. So, um, for example, some, there's a philosopher named Altman, and Altman uh, writes the Stanford Encyclopedia article on discrimination and provides what she thinks is the best um, definition for discrimination and then starts to take it apart and show what the problems are. And the problem, the problem with everyday discourse with people is that they're not necessarily providing coherent definitions. As you say, they're switching between definitions. They often define their terms in terms of other terms, which they then define back in terms of their original terms and there's a circularity in their definitions. And we have to be really careful, especially when we're judging people and moralizing about their behavior. We've got to be really careful um, that we know what we're actually talking about. Um, we've got to define our terms well. All right. So give us, give us the example. Uh, I know you, I know you have already about that circular logic and that circular argument. Right. So, uh, one, one of the, the popular academics today, um, uh, writing about privilege and whiteness is Samantha Weiss. Um, she was a colleague of mine and, uh, Samantha Weiss defines whiteness, um, and she defines privilege in terms of whiteness. Um, but if you ask uh, what whiteness is, she'll define that in terms of privilege. Um, so it's, it's very important not to define terms in terms of other terms which you define back on themselves. We need to ground our social terms um, in ways which, uh, which someone who doesn't already believe in the existence of those terms, that those terms refer to objects in the world, will accept. We've got to ground those terms um, in terms of other terms that we all agree to. And you see, if, you, if you don't believe in privilege initially and you define privilege in terms of whiteness and you don't already agree with, with notions of whiteness, um, it's not going to help your interlocutor to, uh, mm. to understand. All right, so so let's get into this whole – I mean, that was your PhD essentially talking around this type of stuff. Let's get into the – you know, there's whiteness, there's blackness, there's – we've discussed it on this podcast many times, uh, these collective uh, groupings, um, black pain, uh, white tears. What else What else have we got? White privilege, dude. Yeah, white privilege, of course, as we've discussed. And because you don't even know white privilege, it shows that you've got it. Well, clearly, she didn't mention of course, it. of course. Um, so we've got all these these sort of terms which have kind of, well, not kind of, they've been made up. They, they didn't exist. So if you'd gone to someone five years ago and, and talked spoke to them about black pain, they would have been like, "Is, is that a band? Right. You know, is it a horror movie I didn't see?" Right. Um, so, right. Uh, tell us what you think about groups and 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 okay. collectives. So um, there's not there's not a problem per se. With inventing a term to describe something, um, the problem the problem is when you start loading that term with normative features. In other words, you say that uh, there's something wrong with being that thing, or there's something good about being that thing. So it's good to be part of the Black Power movement, or it's wrong to be to have white privilege. Um, so you can you can invent terms for for what you see around you, but as soon as you start loading it with with moral judgments, mm. um, you can't construct moral judgments out of thin air. You know, you need to you need to ground them, and you ground them with 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 well thought through arguments. Uh, you asked about social groups, so uh, my thesis was, was it basically argued that there are no social groups, or at least the claims that we have around social groups are very unclear, and that the view that there aren't social groups is at least as good as, as the view that there are social groups. So um, let's look at at whiteness, for example. So. 
as a as a philosopher, what I'd like to to have is is the person who is claiming there's whiteness. I'd like a definition. So, what do you think whiteness is? Um, I'm sure Roman has heard a few definitions. Roman, can you throw one at me? Well, whiteness is a his. It's how oh, can I explain it? I don't even know. There's so many. There's a historical context whereby certain structures of society see you in a very positive light. And you have privilege because the society was built for you by your kind. Okay. That's one. That's, okay. That's so you're def- defining place. whiteness in terms of privilege. So now I'll ask, okay, so what's privilege? <laughs> privilege is apparently privilege is not being followed around in the, in the shopping mall because you're white. Therefore, you're more trustworthy. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, uh, that's what I heard. There's so many. Um, <laughs> it's a great definition of privilege. Uh, uh, I mean, also around the penny sparrow time, privilege was not being called a monkey. Um, so, oh, right. Okay. So, um, yeah, privilege. But privilege seems to be uh, if you have stuff. No, I've got one. Um, or you have you have standing. One. There's a societal bias to to make. Uh, that, that, that infers that white people are better than other races due to historical and political context. Okay. So what we're looking for as philosophers are what's called necessary and sufficient conditions. So what we want to know is under what conditions do you have whiteness and under what conditions don't you have whiteness? Or another way of asking the question is what are the conditions under which you're a member of the white social group, mm. of the white race, and what are the conditions under which you're not a member of the white social group? Um, so what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for whiteness? And those are very hard to provide. So if your condition is that you have certain things and don't have other things, um, that's not going to work because you get some very poor white people, but they're still considered white. Right. So that's not going to be a necessary condition. So we, we need to provide these conditions in order to understand the concepts that we're using. And if we can't provide those those conditions, then it's not clear that we're using a concept that refers to anything actually existing in the world. I mean, I agree with you completely. Define your terms is the, you know, is the first port of call. And um, they hardly ever defined. And I just want to just side on a, as an aside quickly Do you think it's done intentionally Or are these concepts just very new um, I think it's in, yeah, I, think, it, I think there's a perverse way That these are vague on purpose Yeah I think it, it could be a combination of both So it could be that because they're new They can be perverted very easily Because they don't have a, have a strong following already In terms of a defined coherent definition So it could be that um, You know whiteness is a very new term So we can bandy it around in different ways And use it in different senses And the moment an objector Someone who doesn't believe in the existence of whiteness Pins them down to a definition They just switch up the definition mm. So that could be what's happening um, But it, it could as you say Be slightly more malicious than that So it it could be that someone has an axe to grind and they're just inventing a term that accurately reflects how they feel about certain things that are happening in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's part of the sort of ongoing silencing that, that's happening, which is, so, you know, whiteness applies to all of us. And unless essentially you're one of these sort of guilty whites who goes on Twitter and says things like until white people apologize for everything they've done over millennia, uh, they really can't consider themselves part of the the, the human race going forward. Right. Those types of concepts, yeah. uh, and and so it's 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 and and often uh, Ramon and I get this uh, on a regular occasion where we all get don't 
you dare mention, I don't want to see you in my mentions again, my mentions. Um, uh, uh, you have no right to speak because you're white. Right, um, right. Uh, and this isn't a pretty party for us. We couldn't care less. Uh, so it's not to, we, we don't, we don't give a shit, but, but this is the type of stuff that's happening to people in general. Um, I, I know a friend recently was giving a presentation, said something quite flippantly as a joke and was, uh, instructed to withdraw the comment at the end because someone couldn't take a joke basically. And so that what's going to happen to him is he's, he's, he's going to self censor from now on essentially. Hopefully not. Um, w- no, well he will because yeah. you know, it was at work and, and it created a bit of an unpleasant environment and he, he can't afford to do that at, at his job. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of this stuff seems to be about, uh, pushing forward an ideology, a specific ideology, silencing the other side. Uh, and I think, you know, what Ramon started with in terms of the arguments is that these things aren't based in the arguments, but there are some people pushing these ideas forward who understand a bit of philosophy, you know, not at your level, but they've certainly done a first year course and, and read a little bit. Um, and so they kind of know how to circumvent uh, the entire system. So, how do you how do you get someone who has such an innate belief uh, in something that is so untruthful, where you can show them these types of facts, uh, where you can say, "But this isn't true. What about this? Or what about that?" And they, uh, you know, we off air were discussing that when you when you go to a fundamentalist and you you show them what they believe is incorrect, they don't back down; they double down. Yeah. Um, so, what's the sort of philosopher's approach? Or technique <laughs> to kind of trying to get through to these people. So there's two techniques. The one is to walk away <laughs> and not engage in the discussion. Okay, not um, an option for either of us. Right. Uh, the second one is to try and establish ground rules. Um, and those ground rules really are logic. Okay, so what we do is we say, okay, would you agree with these rules for argument? You know, and you give examples. So here's one. Uh, it's wrong to criticize a person's argument by criticizing a person's character. Mm. So let's say you don't like someone. It doesn't necessarily mean that they can't say anything true. right? Mm. So, um, for example, Frege. Frege has been accused. He was a, he was a, a classical mathematician and philosopher. He, he, he came up with a phenomenal um, uh, philosophy of, of language and mind ideas. Um, he was an excellent logician and mathematician. But people have said, oh, well, he was, he was anti-Semitic, and so therefore his mathematical theories are all false. Hmm. Um, he may have been anti-Semitic, and that may have been a problem with his character, but that doesn't necessarily mean his math is bad. Yeah. So, so I would first ask, um, I would first ask a fundamentalist. Uh, so, so do you agree? Do you agree that that sort of argument, which we call an ad hominem, where you attack someone's argument based upon attacking their character, would you agree that that kind of argument is no good? And I'd give the Frager case, and I'd say, okay, yeah, sure, all right. And then I'd say, okay, well, look what you're doing to me. It has the same structure. Okay. What you're doing to me is saying, I can't have a view because I'm white. So you, you're, you're objecting to my character and in so doing arguing that nothing I say can have any value. Even if what I say is identical with what you say, just because I'm white, I can't present anything of value. It's a great example. So, so essentially, the, 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 uh, even the people we hate the most or have the, the most disagreement with who sit on the opposite side of the spectrum, wherever it may be, uh, may say truthful things. Absolutely. And so our feelings towards them are rather irrelevant. Of course it's irrelevant. But it's very important in philosophy that 
your interpretation of the opposite argument is extremely charitable. Correct. So even so, even if, for example, Eusebius Macaiser, if I'm in a debate with him one day, who knows? He if, doesn't debate people. No, he doesn't debate with people. Him. But <laughs> let's say he does. Um, if I were to have a debate with him, and he has this whole thing about structural whiteness. I would try to be very charitable and say, okay, what exactly are you trying to say? Are you talking about uh, structure as in economics, mm. as in the institutions of the country, as in a lack of representation of black people in X field? Mm. Is that what you're talking about? It's sort of it's charitable and trying to define well, it. It's what I want to get onto next, which is the, you know, ad hominem is what you come across commonly uh, on social media. Sometimes it's not as. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily the whiteness example. It's just like, oh, you're an idiot or something like that. Um, Even idiots can say true things. I- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the What Ramon's referring to is, is something that's sort of been coined as steel manning. Mm-hmm. So looking at the opinion of your, uh, the, your opponent uh, as uh, a strong opinion, trying to uh, prop that opinion up as much as you possibly can, and then object, and then objecting to the strongest version of their of what you believe their views to be. The, the, we get the reverse a lot, um, which is which is, and everyone loves to call everything anyone says as well, straw which man. also drives me crazy. A straw man. Yeah. So, give us sort of a, a philosophical definition of straw manning. So, straw manning is where you deliberately interpret your opponent's argument in a weaker form than than your opponent either intends, or in a in a weaker form than it could be interpreted. As. So, so the, so the way Ramon described it is is very good. So, as philosophers, what we try and do, um, Daniel Dennett wrote wrote down some really good laws mm. for for engaging people. He said the first thing you do is you try with as much charity as possible. He calls it the principle of charity. With as much charity as possible, interpret their view in the most plausible light. Mm. And then only do, do you attack it. Um, what, as, as you say, what, what's happening in our public discourse is that people are deliberately um, undermining each other's views before they can even engage with them. And the problem then is that there's no um, arriving at truth or understanding, as you said at the beginning of the podcast. There's no, there's no pursuit of truth. There's only the pursuit of the win, of the win winning the argument. But I, I think it's far less interesting to win an argument <laughs> than it is to come to a common agreement about a truth. At the end, I prefer winning. <laughs> but I think I think I what, prefer winning when I'm right. So, so the, that, but, that's but what winning, I mean by winning. But winning is rather pointless <laughs> if you don't get people to come over to your side. I mean, you can have yes. the answer to life, yes. But unless you can yes. convince people and yes. you know a, a large majority that yes. you're right, your side you'll die with your with your correct answer to life yes. with nobody. Believing you or agreeing with you. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the one of the tenets of um, of philosophy is that you need to present your argument in a way that a perfectly rational person who has no background in philosophy or any of the terms that you're discussing could understand. If he applied himself, he could understand what you're talking about, and he would find your argument convincing. If your argument won't be convincing to an opponent who doesn't already agree with your view, then there's no point in presenting that argument, and it and it begs the question. It's another it's, a, it's another philosophical term. It begs the question. In other words, you're assuming the thing that you're trying to prove. Hmm. Doesn't religion do that quite well? 
Yes. So, uh, for example, if you ask um, many religious people why God exists, they'll say God exists because the Bible says that God exists. Okay. But the problem is in order for the Bible to be correct, it must have been written by God. So God must have existed. So it's a circular argument. It's trying to, it's assuming the thing that it's trying to prove. It's assuming the conclusion that it's trying to prove. So built into the premises of the argument is the conclusion. So it's a, it's a circular argument or it begs the question. Mm. But it must be maddening being a philosopher in this day. An age because we discussed this prior, uh, before the show. I mean, I didn't. I, I don't think there ever was a a time when people were rational, not rational. I hate the word rational. Reasonable. Let's talk reasonable. And they, I'm and, hating words. I'm losing rational. I've lost problematic. <laughs> no, rational. You're killing me. <laughs> problematic is a shit word to use. Um, but a lot of people think we're actually being dumbed down. Um, I don't think so. I think we're just learning the wrong ideas. Or are we learning about ideas in a way that is detrimental to to us and us, I mean, as a collective? Because I don't think we'll, we'll get anywhere in the future if we don't have um, a basic understanding of what we're discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you think people are are reasonable or is it just the fact that we actually aren't at all? And it's, it's, it's trying to do that, which is the, the point. I don't know if people are becoming more or less reasonable, but I know it's becoming more fashionable to be less reasonable. So it's becoming fashionable to be closed-minded. And the reason for this is that people build an echo chamber around themselves. They surround themselves with people who have the same views as they do. And anyone who doesn't have that view is automatically excluded from that echo chamber. Yeah, a group. Um, So people surround themselves with other individuals that they think share the same beliefs as them. They classify themselves as a group. They build up a following. And uh, once that happens, it's very hard to engage Anyone in that group, especially within social media circles, very hard to engage anyone without being shouted down. And the problem is that, you know, as philosophers, we believe that um, it's the content of your argument that counts. It's what you're saying. It's not how loudly you're shouting it or uh, whether you can get lots of people to clap for you as you shout it and like your posts. Um, and now there's all sorts of reactions on Facebook like love. And, you know, um, the, the question for philosophers is not whether your opinion is popular. The question is the content um, of what you're saying. Is that good content? Do your premises adequately support your conclusion? Are your premises true? These are the questions philosophers ask. And unfortunately, those are not the same questions that are asked today. And it's not popular to ask those questions. What's popular is to present a view which everyone likes. You get lots of likes for it or follows. And and that's not helpful Mm -hmm. at arriving at the truth. Okay, so it's interesting because what you've just said now and what you were describing at the beginning of the show, um, we've had societal sort of views that change. Uh, let's take gay marriage. As an, let's just take being gay as an example. Uh, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, you, basically it wasn't uh, socially acceptable. Um, it, it's interesting because obviously a thousand years ago it, it may have been very socially acceptable. Right, right. So um, these things go through. Yeah, they go through flux, sort of these, yeah. these, these phases. But it wasn't really acceptable. Fifty years ago it was kind of bubbling under the surface, still not acceptable, but there was mm. definitely – Something that was going to happen, and and we've reached the point now when where we've taken a very uh, liberal stance, which I'm perfectly happy with, sure. um, and I, th- I would hope most people are. Look, look at you, virtue signaling. Um, <laughs> but uh, those bloody guys. Uh, right. So the the thing is, is where's the role of philosophy in and philosophers 
and thinking and getting people to have this type of thinking in the the way society behaves um, and is there any role because are we all just apes really and tomorrow if the whole <laughs> earth was kind of destroyed and we had nothing but the forest left would we just revert to being apes you know that argument that's been made a couple of times by some uh, some well-known um, philosophers uh, or is there uh, an argument to be made for kind of getting people to question these things a little bit more uh, closely yeah um within academic circles philosophers have a lot to say about these issues it all falls under the branch of ethics yeah and um <laughs> i mean there's 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 tons of ethics written out there um i have lectured ethics a few times everyone has very strong intuitions about ethics um unfortunately though academic philosophy is not very um accessible Mm. To laymen, and because of that, as you, you 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 were describing the role of philosophers in discussing these issues, because of that, the role of philosophers is not as strong in society as it should be or mm. as it could be. It just um, seems to me like Daniel Dennett should be a household name as, yeah, as much yeah. as Beyonce is. Right, but you, you don't know, see people, you know, quoting Daniel Dennett's lyrics. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, he doesn't have as nice a rear end. I mean, let's no, be honest. Right, you know, philosophy is not as sexy. As uh, as Beyonce, um, I think there's there's two there's two areas in which philosophers are doing good work um, to try and fix that problem. The one is philosophers like Alain de Botton. Um, I really like his work. Uh, really? Roman looks very unimpressed. No, I was very underwhelmed by his work. Um, okay, tell us, tell us, tell us well, more. Alain de Botton is is a Swiss. Oh, I love the French accent. Well, he is French. Very Swiss, actually. But anyway. <laughs> no, he writes very accessible uh, philosophical. Uh, they like essays, really. They books on, on travel was one, mm -hmm. and um, so he just goes through various uh, philosophical ideas about certain things that happen to us on a daily basis or during our lifetime. What do the philosophers say about traveling, or what do they say about loss, or what do they say about this? It's very accessible. It's not bad. I just mm -hmm. find it a bit simplistic. It's not, yeah. It's not. It's not geared to be high. high um, philosophy. It's yeah. purely geared to to engage the masses, and he he has um, he's created a um, a school you could call it. He calls it the School of Life, and they've produced all sorts of YouTube videos, three four minute videos on all sorts of topics and everything from how to leave your relationship to whether you should get married to have children, like real life topics, um, racism. He's got some excellent material which is very brief but very um, very punchy, and even though it is simplistic, um, if you look at it from a philosophical point of view, it, a lot of the content is not content that most people are thinking about. Um, the second area in which philosophers are trying to make inroads, and I'm one of them, is that I write philosophical science fiction. So I write my philosophy into fiction rather than into non-fiction. Um, I find that non-fiction is often um, inaccessible to people, but when I write it as fiction mm. and bury my philosophical ideas within the fiction, not too explicitly, but it's, it's there. Engaging you, story. Well, it's yeah. the same way that Marxism has been embedded in all kinds of right. children's literature. <laughs> right. So hopefully I'm not doing the same thing as, as Marcus yeah, are trying it's to do. In at Blyton, isn't it? The Fantastic Five. <laughs> well, it's not Roll Doll, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and there I think you can try and uh, uh, get across philosophical ideas in a way that's more accessible to the everyday Joe on the street. So, in your opinion, do you think philosophy serves a, a daily purpose? 
I think it should. Or it should, rather. I think it should. I think if everyone did a, a, a logic course, a philosophy 101 logic course, the world would be a very different place. Ah, but you did used to teach this kind of stuff. Yes. And you gave it up. And tell us why. <laughs> so it's did, your yes. fault, it's my Jason. Fault, yeah. All your fault. <laughs> um, I do still teach it to people who are willing to listen, um, but I don't teach it at, at university anymore. Um, because there is massive um, antagonism towards what, uh, many students consider patriarchal, colonial, white logic. Um, and uh, it's, it's often argued that uh, the system of thought is inherently uh, oppressive and discriminatory and racist and problematic. And so you can't, you, 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 you can't get through to people who judge you before you've opened your mouth. Yeah, it was enormous challenge to get through, to break that block, in, an enormous challenge uh, and uh, to 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 get students to treat me at, just with not not even with an initial belief that what I'm saying is correct, but but just to dismantle their skepticism, mm. um, uh, their cynicism and or, skepticism. or tell you why you're wrong. Yes, and just to engage in debate rather mm. than dismissing me purely because I'm a white male lecturer. Um, very very difficult, and although I think it's it's a worthwhile project and it was it was rewarding in certain ways. By the end of uh, the last course I taught, I felt there was just so much resistance. Well the, well, the worst part is that they can have a black female lecturer now, and they will still reject the content because it's colonial. So, Correct. And the, these are the problem with these arguments is that Correct. even if you fix the so-called problem, uh, there's another problem until the, 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 the entire structure which they have a problem with doesn't exist. Correct. Um, but even then, they could argue that that structure persists through other forms. Well, you, you know, the institutional racism where there is no institutional racism. Correct. Still, still, still. Anyone who listens to this podcast, I want to know about the institutional racism. Let's look at the state. I want to know if the black president, the black chief justice, the black uh, head of the police, the black head of the NPA, the 80% black um, MPs in parliament, and the over 90% black mayors in the country, and over 95% black police officers – Please show me institutional racism. I'll yeah. wait. <laughs> and you know what they're going to say? They're going to they're going to try throw the private sector in your face, right? That, that makes a lot of sense. Because eh? <laughs> apparently, apparently, what uh, so like a, a, your plumber is like institutionally racist. Get out of here. And 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 let's not forget that if uh, your plumber wants to be institutionally racist, he damn well is allowed to be, um, because that's a private entity. So. Well, uh, it's illegal now. He has, he has, uh, <laughs> he has, we may not agree with him and may not use his services, and that's what you would hope the free market would do, but th that's the rights of people and their private property. We have to ask some difficult questions, mm. uh, and we have to demand answers to those questions. So one of the questions is, under what conditions is an institution racist? That's, that's, that's the fundamental question we've got to ask. What are the necessary and sufficient conditions for an institution being racist? Mm. As Roman said, some of those conditions, which we might assume don't seem to be being met in certain areas, like in government uh, representativeness. Um, so we might ask, so in what, in, in, in what sense is government still institutionally racist? And we need an answer to those questions. If a good answer can be provided to those, to those questions, then we can look at addressing Institutional racism. And, and I think on some levels, uh, a lot of those claims have been addressed. I, I look at universities, for example, who've turned around and said, well, you know, you're correct. Our, our staff are uh, UCT, what was it, 75% sort of uh, uh, 
I think white, I'm not sure, male, but, but certainly white. Uh, and they, they did look at addressing that. And as far as I know, they have started addressing that in, in trying to balance, uh, you know, the staff complement. Of course, that's difficult because, uh, people at universities are by definition well educated. You have to be to teach people things. Right. And it takes time. It takes time for people to, to get to that level. We know about the historical issues in the country. Um, I want to shift slightly. Uh, you said, you, you said ethics are something that are almost innate to people. Um, a little bit earlier. Well, not quite, but go on. Yeah. Yes. All right. So stop straw manning him. <laughs> I'm sure those were the words he used, but we can, you can, you can rewind at this point. Um, what I, what I wanted to discuss was ethics in general, um, and maybe some sort of touchy subjects. Mm. Uh, we had a little bit of a chat before we came on air. Uh, there are things that we kind of just have an assumption of this is right and this is wrong. Um, and there are a lot of these topics that I've sort of been confronted with recently, like Ramon and I had a long chat about incest a while back. Um, and they kind of make you think it doesn't necessarily change your feeling, but it's, you go from being, I know that's absolutely wrong to hold on. Mm. I'm not so sure. Mm. So, it's a fascinating um, phenomenon to watch when someone goes from a position of complete certainty about a moral truth or an ethical truth to doubt and then maybe even changing their mind. Um, so as, as ethicists, what we ask of people whenever they have any moral intuition is to provide an argument for that intuition. So we have fundamental moral principles. Here's one, for example, is utilitarianism. So utilitarianism yeah. states that an action's right just in case it benefits society mm. as a whole. Uh, here's That's another good one. for the group. Good, yeah, good for – well, it depends how you define society. It yeah. could be the group that you're in. It could be humanity. Different utilitarians define mm. the group differently. Um, here's another one is Kantianism. So um, Kant has a few different uh, formulations of his ethics, but Kant's formula of humanity says that an action's right if and only if or just in case it respects the dignity of everyone involved. Mm. So when you have a moral intuition or you're expressing uh, what you think is a moral truth, we ask, so why do you believe that? You know, um, are you using a utilitarian justification here? Are you using a Kantian justification? And often what people do is these different underlying principles like utilitarianism or Kantianism, they're at odds with each other. They'll produce different results in different situations. Um, but they'll use both. They'll, they'll switch from one to, to another depending on what suits them. So here's an example. Um, a very famous ethical uh, case is the trolley problem. So in the trolley ah. problem, um, what you, there's, there's different formulations of the trolley problem. And depending on how you formulate it, uh, different, diff, people, people have different intuitions. But here's one formulation. So uh, um, unfortunately, the, the trolley problem, just before I, before, before I give it, was stated um, decades ago when there was no PC language. So, so it's not going to sound very politically correct. Anyway, so you've got, you've got this train traveling along these tracks and, uh, it's gonna hit this, it's gonna hit this collection of people, say five school children. So there's five school children on the tracks. The train's gonna hit these five children. It's gonna be carnage. They're gonna die. It's horrible. But if you flip the, the, the train, the train switch, there's a, there's a switch on the tracks. If you flip the switch, the train will diverse onto another track and hit a big fat man. The fat man is in all our philosophical cases. I don't know why. <laughs> um, but there's the fat man and there's these five kids. You've got to flip the switch if you, if you want to save these five kids. But in so doing, you're killing the fat man, or at least the train's going to hit the mm. fat man and die. What should you do? 
So that's a trolley problem. And depending on which underlying philosophical principle you hold, you'll you'll support one or the other answer. You should flip the switch or you shouldn't. And what's so interesting is that even though everyone thinks that their moral intuitions are absolutely correct and no one else would, would possibly disagree with them, if you, ask, if you ask a group of people, if you give them the trolley problem, roughly half will say flip the switch and the no, other half, half will won't. say don't. Yeah. Because it's, it's, the, it's whether you uh, kill by action or or basically but you don't or neglect you or neglect yeah yeah i mean that's one way of framing it so yeah. a kantian would frame it that way but a utilitarian <laughs> okay. would say well it's five people versus one yeah, yeah and it's simple as simple as that. that yeah yeah so so depending on on who you ask they're going to they're going to give you I, a I don't know if you answer. saw that thing on the internet recently there was a guy who gave his kid the yeah, trolley the trolley it, problem yeah. um <laughs> like a 3 year old kid with a little train track and it had the split and um he put he put five people on the track and, and one people on one person on the other track and the kid just took the 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 one person on the one side of the track, moved it to where the five people were and killed all six. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's I don't think that's consequentialist or can't you? <laughs> no, it's neither that it but awesome. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's yeah. just pure evil if it exists. But so but so interesting that uh, that that everyone's intuitions can differ so so widely. Yeah. Um on the incest debate? Yeah. Since I brought it up. Yeah. So why do you think incest is wrong, Jonathan? Because I was told it's wrong. Um, <laughs> th- that's probably the initial reason why I think it's wrong. Uh, I, I think a lot of uh, beliefs we, we hold are because our parents told us that was wrong yes. or society told us it was wrong or, yes. you know, normative behaviors. Um, I hate to use the, uh, the, that's problematic, the SJW language, but, but, but what we view as normal in our society. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the discussion Ramon and I were having—is uh, it Jonathan Haidt that's that uh, that Indeed. that example? You, you know, a, a brother and sister go away for the weekend, uh, secluded nature reserve or whatever, no one around. Uh, they both—he uses a condom, she is on contraceptives um, religiously. Ha ha ha! No, but were, <laughs> the key thing to this um, scenario, the thought experiment, is that they want to try it just once, just to try it out. Yeah, have a bit not of for fun. procreative purposes. No one's going to see. And no there's, there's, there's almost there's no chance that they're going to have a baby right. out of it. Uh, they're going to have sex, and no one else will know about it, and whatever. And Question where's is the problem? Right. So different ethicists will give you a different answer. Um, depending on which ethical theory you hold true. So a utilitarian would say, does everyone involved benefit? You know, do they have a good time? Um, and <laughs> do they benefit in the long term as well? So um, they might enjoy the sex. Um, so a utilitarian would say that it's wrong if they don't enjoy the sex and if afterwards they feel bad. Okay. Okay. But a utilitarian would say it's right, it's nothing wrong with it if they enjoyed the sex and they feel fine afterwards. Um, so utilitarian looks only at their happiness, you know, how, how much utility is involved, how much happiness is involved. A Kantian would say, well, is there dignity undermined? And interestingly, Kant thought that all sex was wrong. So sex automatically undermines your dignity of any sort. Incest, non-incest, straight, gay, sex is bad. <laughs> okay. Um, so Kant would have a problem with that, but modern day Kantians don't take quite, quite, it's such a strong line, um, but they might still say that your dignity is undermined because your concept of yourself as a brother or a sister is somewhat undermined, or maybe you feel really bad about it after you feel like you've lost your dignity. Yeah. yeah. So different philosophers will give you different answers so, depending on the So let's move just to a favorite topic of mine, voting. So, Jonathan, 
You must school Jonathan on this. I've tried. He, he's intuitively. I'm, I'm, I'm lost. I'm lost. And just like the majority of voters around the world. Exactly. And the majority of people around the world are idiots. That's why we got Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton running. Um, crooked Hillary. Crooked Hillary, sorry. Um, so, voting, right? Okay, so. I, I don't see it, but please explain why it's, it's a, not a bad idea, just that it's not immoral not to vote. Yeah, I actually think it is. I, I don't think it's immoral, by the way. Immoral? I don't think it's immoral at all not to vote. Oh, okay. I don't think there's a moral argument there. Oh. It's, it's immoral to vote. That's interesting because I think it is immoral to vote. Okay. Ah. Yeah. Um, it's immoral to vote for a number of reasons. The simplest reason is just that your vote doesn't count. So it counts a minuscule amount, which in reality doesn't really make any difference. Okay. Um, and during that time, you could be doing better things. You could just have sex and enjoy yourself during that time. Or you could... Have you heard George Carlin on this? No. He says the difference between me and you voting is that when I masturbate, I have something left to show for it. <laughs> <laughs> so a utilitarian would say, well, if you can have a better time masturbating than voting then you're doing the wrong thing because overall society is a less happy place when mm. you vote. Um, another argument would be that when you vote, you are supporting a system which isn't just. Um, so you're supporting a system, you're providing your implicit or explicit consent uh, to a system which uh, you might not agree with, or which I think is unjust. Where is the pragmatic argument there in terms of that is a system we have? So Roman's not going to vote. Ramon will never vote. Ramon will die a non-voter. Um, I'm sure he's he, – he, look at the grin on his face. Um, <laughs> but you make it sound like I'm some okay, sort of so, – uh, no, 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 I'm making that like a very solid – like Ramon is definitely 75, 80, hopefully 100 years on the planet. Still not voting. And he's not voting. Yeah. He dies not voting. Um, and the truth be told is that chances are uh, – could be wrong, but chances are voting will still be in place. We'll still have – Democracies or Possibly. something. Democracy is quite new. It might mm. expire. Yeah, it could expire, but unlikely in our lifetime, I would reckon. Maybe. Um, yeah, look, I mean, President Trump could change everything. But Ramon wants me to get to the point. But, yes. but the, the, the he'll die a non-voter. The system won't change. It'll it'll still be um, him uh, a voting system. And my argument would be: I vote. I try to vote for the people who I believe will change the system will de-escalate the system at some level and slowly over time it won't happen overnight the system will change and will become just so whether or not the system changes won't won't deter, won't be determined by whether you vote though you specifically individually yeah because the question we're asking is should you as an individual vote not whether the group we should have a voting democracy yeah we're asking whether you jonathan should but vote. but if enough people don't vote then the three people who rock up do matter so I, I'm not sure. Suppose no one voted. Yeah. You would have a system I'm very comfortable with, which is anarchy. Um, God, I'm in the studio with two anarchists. <laughs> it's like my worst nightmare. Yeah. So I, I, I would prefer a system where no one, I mean, people often say, but if no one voted, we'd have, we'd have disaster. And I say, no, no, no. If no one voted, we'd be much better off. Um, another, another argument, um, Remember I said earlier that my thesis is that social groups don't exist. Now, if social groups don't exist, the government doesn't actually exist right now. Um, so voting is actually a, um, an illusion 
Um, you're not actually voting for any party that actually exists. There isn't a government. And when people say um, anarchy is, is a terrible thing, have you seen anarchist states? Horrible things happen. I say, but we're in anarchy right now. There's no government right now. Um, we would just be making that explicit so that everyone understands that if no one were to vote. Yes, I mean, that's what I keep saying. Is when I meet people at, at the coffee shop to talk about ideas, which I tend to do quite often, and I speak about anarchy, no, it's a terrible system. I said, okay, what did the state you know, force you to be here today? Is the state going to force you to pay for your coffee? Is the state forcing you to get into your car to get you? No, you did it voluntarily. We are in a system of anarchy right now having this conversation. Um, so just extrapolate that mm. to, to a greater... Is there, is there no social? group of people who would show up, have coffee and walk out and not pay in an anarchy? Because in an anarchy, there is no one to come and enforce the law. Right. So, I mean, you, so you might argue right now there's no one to... I mean, there the are law. things I would do. Trust me, I would drive home at 200 kilometers an hour. If it wasn't for the fact that there might be a cop on the way home. But there's a lot of people who drive at 200 kilometers an hour now. Anyway, sure. Yeah, and many of them don't you get don't think impacted we... or influenced anyway by the law. Yeah, but um, some, like, some like me do. No, but, sure. But, but sorry, if I may say, like speed limits are completely arbitrary. Yeah, as, no, no, as, no, I, no, 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 no. Scientifically, yeah. not scientifically, through studies, uh, they show that it doesn't matter how fast you Tra- you travel it is the relative speed of everyone around you at that time and just that what speed. counts that's what counts if you got someone at 200 and someone at 40 that's where accidents happen hmm. if you're all traveling at 150 160 okay back to less. back to the back to the, the there's, there's interesting studies the that suggest that um that 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 they've they've looked at at death penalty um death penalty examples where countries have introduced the, the death penalty or removed the death penalty mm. and it doesn't influence whether people perform crimes that would be um, punishable by the death penalty so just because there's a particular punishment for your crime that the law um, stipulates it doesn't necessarily influence your behavior i think it's a similar kind of argument to the claim that um atheists won't be moral Okay. Um, so people argue that you must believe in God because if you don't believe in God, you're going to be an immoral or amoral agent who's not going to do anything good in your life because there's no one to ultimately to, to hold you accountable. Mm, uh, this is a good argument. Yeah. Well, I think it's, a, I think it's a weak argument because if you have a look at, at well, I'm saying your, your side of it. Oh, right. Good right oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I think there's an equivalent argument. It's, it's a good analogy to this case. So just because people think that, you know, just because there's a law that says, that your actions are, are, are illegal, it, that won't necess- necessarily influence whether or not you perform those actions. You might p- find people like me who, who are anarchists who still behave pretty well, right? Mm. And you might find people who believe in the existence of the law and that democracy is a good thing being hypocritical and doing really nasty stuff. I think those are called politicians, Jason. <laughs> yeah. The ones who create the law don't follow the law. Right. Yes. And they got special privileges not to follow the law. Mm. Yeah, I think they're called politicians. Mm. Let's talk about politician privilege for once. Um, <laughs> but, but Jason, but going on to, to anarchy in particular, what, I mean, I know my reasons for being anarchist. What are yours? Okay, so there's different forms of anarchism. Uh, in the philosophical literature, there's strong anarchism, there's weak anarchism. Weak anarchism just states that um, uh, you, you're not obligated to follow the state's rule. Strong anarchists state that not only should you, uh, not only are you not obligated to follow the state's rule, but you should rebel against the state. And then my position is metaphysical anarchism, which is that the state doesn't exist right now. So it's not like I want to change. I don't think there's a state right now. I don't for, think- for someone who's listening and says, well, there's the union buildings and there's parliament and there's people who sit there and they make up laws and then there's people who run around the streets with guns and tell you what to do. How is that? So I believe in what I see, right? 
what I don't see is the union buildings in Parliament. What I see is a building, and I see a bunch of individual people sitting in that building and a bunch of individual people debating about how what policies should be enacted. But I don't see actual laws being manufactured, and I don't see a union, and I don't see a parliament. I just see individual people. Mm. I believe in what I can see. I, I, In that sense, I'm an empiricist. I believe in what I can see and touch and feel and so, taste. So those people, it's back to your thesis, which is those people sitting in parliament, just because they're sitting in parliament and they claim that they make up a group called the government – aren't necessarily a group. Correct. They believe they're a group. Yeah. They believe they're a parliament. They believe there's laws that they're creating or dismissing, but I don't think they're actually, that any of those beliefs are actually true. I think there's just a bunch of individuals. A policeman, on my view, is not a policeman. He's just an individual with a gun who's telling you what to do, but he's not, he's not in the social sense a policeman. Well, well, I mean, some thinking there. I mean, I fully agree with you. I've actually read uh, your your thesis, Jason, a while ago. True, but I did read it at the time, and it was very persuasive to me. I was an anarchist already before reading it, by the way. Um, but it was very persuasive. Not going to um, give you any credit, eh? <laughs> no, no, but it, it helped me rationalize my views a bit better, help, or make them more reasonable to others. So, what do you mean by the, there is no groups? We touched on this a bit earlier, but. One would, sorry if I may, one would think that a group is individuals together under a common theme or common intention or something to that effect. And you disagree. You say that doesn't exist whatsoever. Yeah. So another way of phrasing what I'm trying to say is that there's no such, no such thing. There's no difference between a mere aggregate of individuals and a social group. I'll give you an example. This is the central example I use in my thesis. So when I was in first year, there was massive um, protest adverts. Uh, it was also a, a fees must fall equivalent movement. And um, it, it was it was really impactful uh, for my development as a student because um, I remember one day I was walking uh, through Central Block um, at Wits University and uh, I looked up and there was this row of policemen, um, of riot police, and they were marching into the, the Central Block crowd and uh, they fired tear gas it was incredibly visceral and it struck me that there seemed to be something very different about that group of students who were protesting in a in what seemed like a very unified way they were singing together they were chanting they were waving banners ANC youth league flags um they were they seemed to be very coherent but at other times on the central block concourse on a different day at a different time there's just uh, students walking to their classes some are having lunch some are chatting um they're not unified in the same way. They're not, they're not interrelated in the same way or interacting in the same way. And, um, on the one hand, with that sort of loose formation of students, I'd call that a mere aggregate. It's just a bunch of individuals in the same place. But it seemed like the other bunch of individuals, the protesters, the NC Youth Leaguers, that was a social group, right? Mm. And, and the way I, I phrase my thesis is, um, there's no real difference between the two cases. Now, there's lots of arguments that go into that and it would take some time to discuss that, but that's, that's the crux of it, that, um, there are mere aggregates. There's, there's bunches of individuals that are just in a collective together at the time, but that collective, on my view, doesn't have the ability to act together. That's a core notion of a social group, that a social group can collectively act. They can protest. They can wave banners. They can collectively bring down a government. They can perform a coup, a coup of the universities or a coup of the state. They can collectively act. On my view, they can't. It's impossible for a group to collectively act. But what is possible is for a whole bunch of individuals to act individually. 
So, so I'm denying the existence of collective action, that there's a collective called white people or black people who can collectively perform an action, but there are individual people who believe that they're white who can do things and individuals who believe that they're black and can individually act. But I'm denying the existence of a large social group that can act. So are you saying that those protesters, um, when, when you saw them, they could all have the same set of beliefs at that time, so to speak, but their motivations are different. Yeah, so there's, 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 I, I'm, I'm denying that there's anything in common with all those people on that central block concourse while they're protesting, that there's a single feature that's common to all of them and that no one outside the group has. In other words, I'm denying that there's a feature that's both necessary and sufficient for all the members of that group. I'm saying without that feature... You don't have a group. You've just got a bunch of disparate individuals who happen to be in the same place, but they're not a group. So, so Ramon, what do you think that central? What what do you think that central feature of all those people? Was? Oh, right. Okay. So they they all came together. They planned it beforehand in the meeting of sorts, and they all came to Central Park and said, "We're going to protest right here. Where's the most? We are very visible to everyone coming in in our Central Block, and we are going to." protest about the fee increase that's happening in a week's time and we are going to do so by chanting these songs right. for example. Now if you were to walk around to each of those people and you were to ask them okay what exactly is protesting because that what you're saying is that the central feature is that they've decided to protest but you were to ask all those individuals say what's a protest and what is it exactly that you're protesting against and what is it exactly that you want you'd get many different answers. You wouldn't get a single answer from all those people. So even though it appears like um, there's a central belief or a central goal, philosophers call it a telos, that there's a central goal or telos that all the people in the group have, I'm denying that there really is. Maybe in very small groups, um, maybe like a family, their central goal is to go away on holiday on Saturday. But even there, you know, um, you might find that the youngest kid really doesn't want to go, but he's going because his parents say he has to go. And you might find all those people on the central block concourse. A lot of them are there because they, they feel like they must be there because there's peer pressure for them to be there because their friends say they must be there. But they might not actually share that, that goal to protest and to achieve a certain outcome. They might not even know what the fee increase is next week. They might not have been at that meeting a week before and decided. They might have been walking by and thought, oh, this is fun. Yeah, some just want a, a free T-shirt or whatever yeah. the case might be. Yeah, and um, although I'm sure many of the students in the Fees Must Fall movement um, do have some sort of um, noble goal, many of them also just were along for the ride. They were along for a destructive ride. There was this this incredibly there's incredible violence in burning down buildings, burning books, burning paintings, a lot of anger involved, and that probably had nothing to do with a central goal or telos. It was just writing insane behavior. Okay, and how do you stop that rioting and insane behavior and anarchy? Um, good question. <laughs> Very simple. Insurance. You it doesn't, it doesn't stop the behavior, though. So They'll you still might, burn down your house. So your or, house will get rebuilt. private security. You might employ private security, which is what Vitz did in the last uh, Fees Must Fall um, protest. Uh, you might also... Um, you might also conceive of a world where this is possible. So um, I'm a science fiction author, and, and one of the books I wrote about, uh, one of the books I wrote is called The Solace Pill, and it tries to imagine a world that's purely anarchist. There's no central govern, governing um, body. There's no state. Um, but technology has evolved in such a way that you don't need it. So there's certain problems with anarchism. Uh, one of them is enforcing the law. Another one is how do you uh, make sure there's trade? 
um, if you don't have, for example, money to trade with, you don't mm. have a currency. Um, and I try to construct a world uh, where technology um, supplies this. So I, so I imagined a world where there's 3D printers that can produce whatever you want. Mm. Um, and back when I wrote the novel about four years ago, 3D printers weren't as popular as they are now. Yeah. And we're starting to believe that we can print pretty much anything with 3D Except printers. Except a 3D printer. Uh, maybe you can th- <laughs> print a 3D printer too. It's the equivalent of a replicator on Star Trek. So on Star Trek, they've got these replicators. Using this replicator, they can reproduce anything. So they can, they, they, using fundamental atoms, they can produce anything. And so having an object as a possession is worthless because you can just reproduce that object at any time. Mm. So that would resolve a lot of the anarchist issues. You might find that an anarchist state is only um, plausible or feasible once we evolve our technology. And also once you eliminate um, demand issues of things, right? Yeah, you might need to kill off half the population for it to work or take half your population, put it on another planet or explore off-world. You might need a less populated system in order, in order for anarchism to In really the beginning or, or in the long term? Um, so, so if, for example, we could spread off planet, uh, we'd probably have to leapfrog from planet to planet as the population grows. So yeah. maintain a long-term small population. Yeah. So anarchism works well. Anarchy works better better with a smaller population. I in, think in theory. so. I think so because yeah. uh, you need you need infinite resources if you've got an infinitely large populace. Um, if you've got limited resources, you need a limited populace. And things like tribalism. So say more. Well, I'm just wondering. In an anarchy, it's kind of. <laughs> It makes me think of those sort of post-apocalyptic movies where, uh, you know, there is an anarchy, essentially. The government has fallen. There's nothing. And, you know, for some reason, they always dress the women like Amish people. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know why in a post-apocalyptic time um, you, you, that's what you dress in. But the the these small sort of communities which kind of come together as these like everyone working for each other type of concepts, um, if you've – if you in an in in this kind of state have have um uh, have almost kibbutzim these small yeah, groups well, well of, what if what happens when you have different sort of uh groupings i know it's a bad word with me but <laughs> but but, but, yeah. but you, you have someone who uh, say we have an, uh, an anarchy but you know there's two religious groups and the religious groups Frick it, there's Jews and Muslims, right? Um, and they specifically happen to be the only place that survived the nuclear war that, uh, President Trump started is Gaza and Israel, right? Um, and, and, but, but all the, all the government people who retreat into their bunkers are dead. Um, so we have an anarchy and, and fundamentally these people hate each other. Um, so how do you, how, how does that work in an anarchy? Um, so, so there's different ways of dealing with this problem. The one is imagine everyone believed what I believe. Yeah. Okay. Imagine everyone believed that there aren't groups. You wouldn't have these two warring sects, right? Yeah. Okay, so that would eliminate that problem. But assuming that people do believe in groups, well, then it probably will devolve into a… Into a, a us versus a, them. Yeah, us versus them and establishing some kind of power uh, of one group over another. <coughs> um, I'm not saying that anarchy is inevitable, mm. and I'm not saying that it's likely even. I'm just saying that it might be a better system. Is there anything you like about democracy? Um, it's better than other systems. <laughs> it's the um, Winston Churchill quote. Yeah, it's the yeah. worst system ever, but it's the best thing we have. Yeah, it's the best of bad possibilities. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I think a be- the best system would be no system. 
with certain technological uh, insertions like 3D printers for everyone and maybe with moving off world and halving the population. Um, but, but is it likely to happen? Probably not. All right. You've said moving off world a few times. So I want to go there because yeah. you're a sci-fi writer. Correct. So you, you probably like me would love to go to space. Yes. Absolutely, um, yeah. and, uh, you would uh, very much like to visit another planet. Uh, we, I, I don't know. Look, I don't know what your bank account looks like, but I'm very <laughs> unlikely to go to space enough, yeah. anytime soon. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, I think by the time it becomes mainstream, I'll probably be dead. Um, so what happens when we do eventually move off the planet? Uh, probably the moon first and then Mars. Uh, although Elon just wants to go to Mars. Uh, good luck to him. I can't stand the man. Um, but what happens when we move to Mars and essentially the human species becomes not the human species anymore because those people on Mars become Martians. Mm. Um, and from a medical perspective, they are physiologically going to change. So um, if you live on Mars, you probably won't be able to come back to Earth because you won't be able to cope with our gravity. Uh, and over time, they will look different. They, they won't look mm. like we – well, they'll be much taller, for example. Their facial features will be different. We're not sure if they'll survive, actually. Mm. Um What's the ethics of? Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's lots of lots of sci-fi novels about this. I'm busy uh, reading one at the moment called The Spin. Um, it's it's basically a world where um, Earth Earth develops this membrane around it, which makes time pass much faster outside the Earth than inside the Earth. So mm. for every minute that passes inside the Earth, a thousand years pass outside the Earth, and they send a colony of of Earthlings to mm. Mars, but they don't have their own membrane around Mars, and so they evolve over over two Earthling years, millions of years, or hundreds of thousands of years pass mm. on Mars, and they become very different to Earthlings. And um, there's 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 lots of sci-fi novels that deal with this. Um, one of the interesting questions for ethicists is: um, Are ethics um, specific to humans, um, or are they specific to persons? And I, my view is that um, ethics uh, guide our behavior around in the way we relate to other persons. And a person need not be human, but they do need to satisfy certain criteria. They need to be rational to a certain degree. Um, I don't think dogs are persons. Mm. Uh, they're not, they don't have the degree of rationality uh, required to be a person. Um, but we still might think that there's certain ethical constraints in the way we can treat dogs. You don't want to rip your dog apart and fling him through the air and have, have dog ripping parties. You know, they wouldn't be considered <laughs> ethical. Um, but, but at the same time, you don't want to treat him the same way you would treat another human being. Yeah. yeah. Well, most people treat them better than they treat other human beings. Yeah. <laughs> Not me, though. I hate and, my bugs. I kick them every time I see them. And us, us uh, colonizing the universe while we're still basically a warring bunch of apes? Yeah, we need to prioritize. So um, I, I, I believe quite firmly that we need to um, destroy the Earth as quickly as possible so we have to get off it. Um, mm. So at the moment, there's, like that so that, yeah, so there's, there's a very strong view that uh, it's immoral to pollute. It's immoral to destroy the environment. Yeah, we have to save the earth for our grandchildren. Yeah. I mean, the I'm reality here to is, enjoy the earth. Screw no, my grandchildren. It's, 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 it's a really uh, poor line of reasoning. And the reason why is because ultimately, with our population growth, the earth will be impossible to inhabit long term. If we are going to survive as a species, we have to go off world. We have to, and we don't seem adequately motivated at the moment. But if we destroy Earth, if we <laughs> if we make it totally uninhabitable, we've got to leave. <laughs> that is superb. I love that. <laughs> so, 
But, um, okay, well... It's a moral thing to do. Run your bath as long as possible. Waste water. It's the moral <laughs> thing to running. do. Leave your car running. Make sure you've got CFCs in your, in your deodorant and your yeah. fridge. Throw yeah. pl- uh, polystyrene on the street. Just, just, just walk around Joburg and, and uh, deodorant cans <laughs> at all the hobos. It's the, it's the moral thing to do. I'm not I sure can't believe the, how moral sure the, the Chinese hobos, are. <laughs> it's just unbelievable how all this time they, they've had the answers, eh? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's actually a fascinating concept because, I mean, the population growth slows down once people become a bit richer and, and all that sort of stuff. Okay. Not yeah. slow enough. So long as you've got positive growth in the long term, any given planet is not sustainable. But it's still term. like a few centuries to go, though. I, mean, I wonder. Nine billion people is, is is said to be the limit, but it's still not We're going to run much. out of water soon. Um, and uh, there's going to be genuine don't, don't, issues. Isn't it though? You know what you're saying is is very interesting because what it, it, the base of your argument is: if we destroy the earth, necessity is what drives human Correct. innovation, right? Correct. So at the same time, I would say that if we run out of water, necessity will drive us to invent ways to create water. Possibly, but you can't keep doing that indefinitely. So the earth is a fin- it has finite resources. You know, it's a big place, it's a big rock, there's lots of water and there's lots of stuff underneath the surface and yeah, okay, but it's, it's limited. At, at some point. Yeah, it's a limited, it's a limited resource. But humanity reproducing at an exponential rate is an unlimited curve population growth and and you 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 can't fit an unlimited quantity uh, in a limited space and you can't you can't feed or provide a, 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 an unlimited uh, population with a limited number of resources yeah i think i'll disagree with you on that one uh, um what's it called spontaneous what's it called oh shit what Schumpeter. spontaneous destruction creative destruction is the is the you know is the engine of, of progress? We will. Find, I think we will hit a peak population, and there will be ways to feed and clothe and whatever without everyone. going off world. Yeah, and without mass dying. Yes, no, so I think so. That could happen. It's possible. I mean, logically, I think there's problems with that because of fin- finitude and infinitude. But but even if that were the case, you might feel that our quality of life would be much better. If we had more resources. Hey, don't get me wrong. I'd rather we go off off world than stay here. So even if you think that necessarily it's Why? the end I of like humanity. It, yeah. Well, Jonathan can stay and <laughs> I'll go after the planet's been destroyed. You can stay with, with the Wokey Pokey Brigade and Jason and I will go to the Wokey Pokey. <laughs> the Wokey Pokey Brigade are going are gonna to kill themselves off. Don't worry. So, Jason, just to end off, well, thank you for coming, sir. It sure. was great. Thanks, thanks for hosting me. Give a plug to your, to your books. So it's sci-fi. Yes, with, science fiction. With, with philosophy in it. Correct. Yes. Where can we find them? Um, so you can find my stuff either on my website, which is www.jasonwerbeloff.com and I think Jonathan and and uh, Roman will be kind enough to put a link. Um, Absolutely. Um, otherwise, you can have a look at my work on Amazon. All my books are available for download on Amazon, physical or ebooks. Um, and again, you can look for Jason Werbeloff on Amazon. And again, I'll provide them with a link. And um, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, at Jason Werbeloff. Great. And just uh, before we, we arrived on the show, he told me he sells figures to some degree, and you f- you sell a lot better than you see, Mr. Kaiser, which is not which is not difficult, by the way. That's, <laughs> that's I, right. I haven't written a book, good. and I've sold better than you see, Mr. Kaiser. <laughs> okay, well, you yeah. Well, I hope everyone has uh, managed to now knows what a good argument consists of or comprises of. Uh, please start using them, especially against me, so I can come back on Twitter <laughs> rejuvenated. 
that's to the Wokerty Pokerty people listening, eh? Indeed. Well, thank you for thank you for listening. Thank you for hosting, guys. Yeah, you can uh, find uh, the Renegade Report on uh, Facebook. Um, it's Renegade Report. Go give us a like. Uh, and please uh, share some of our Facebook uh, posts. Some people may never have heard us uh, and maybe new to podcasts. We're trying to spread the word. You can find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore report. As always, Ramon on Twitter at Roman Kabernack. Myself at Jonathan underscore wit. It's been a pleasure and we will catch you next time. Cliff Central. The revolution. I've got something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com.